electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Scott Wagner, live from Post 9, right here at the New York Stock Exchange. This make-or-break hour begins with markets on edge as a critical week gets underway. Clearly, the events in the Middle East have introduced a new level of risk for investors, but markets, they are strengthening as we move into this final hour. Take a look at your scorecard with 60 minutes to go in regulation. We're at the highs of the day across the board, and that's despite those geopolitical concerns. Even the Nasdaq, which was the big loser earlier, has turned around. It's good for one half of one percent. But everything right now is in the green. That ahead of earnings and important inflation data still to come later in the week. So there's a lot still ahead of us, obviously. Also worth noting today, the bond markets closed. But importantly, bond futures suggest some much needed rate relief could be on the way tomorrow as yields look as though they'll be decidedly lower. It'll be interesting to see, of course, how that cycles through the equity market. But perhaps some of it already is, as we showed you what the stock market is doing, perhaps in part based on what's happening in the futures market, at least as it relates to bonds. Takes us to our talk of the tape, the risk reward for your money and whether it's about to get better, as some are suggesting. Let's ask Adam Parker. He's the founder and CEO of Trivariate Research, a CNBC contributor with me, as you see, at Post 9. Um, interesting turn in the market. Yeah. Do you think it is in part because of what the futures are telling us that bond yields could do tomorrow and we'll get some relief? I think so. I mean, you always have these weird days when the bond markets close and the equity markets open. Uh, and, you know, um, the value of a lot of the growth stocks, as you alluded to, is you know correlated or associated with uh, the perception about rates in the future, and I think when you get a risk-off trade, the ten-year yield usually goes lower, and so some of these things could uh, get a little bit of a bid. And I also think that, frankly, a lot of investors believe the consensus view among institutional investors is we're going to end the year higher. That they they're behind on the 12, 13 percent we're up in the S and P. They're behind on the 20 something percent we're up on the Nasdaq. They didn't really allocate as much to equities as they should have at the end of the year. And I think people are going to chase a little bit. And frankly, what are we? October 9th. We didn't get any major negative pre-releases yet. Usually, you'd get if things were worrisome on the earnings front, you'd get some some kind of mess in the first seven or eight days. So I, I think people are thinking earnings are going to be okay and guidance is going to be okay. And maybe we could be sort of. You know, off to a, a bit of a, a rally based on fundamentals. What about um, this new geopolitical risk that was introduced over the weekend? Sort of always in the background, but yeah. now it, it goes on the hot boil and we have all out war. Yeah, I mean, when you have a risk off trade in that sense, typically the businesses that do the worst are the ones that have poor free cash flow and poor free cash flow conversion. So by conversion, I mean the earnings, like how much of the net income gets turned into free cash flow. So we put out over the weekend uh, ideas that you want to short or ideas you want to avoid owning where they have poor free cash flow attributes and poor, poor conversion. I think that makes sense. But I'm looking at the market here thinking, gosh, I see a lot of things I want to own. You do? And a lot of things that seem oversold. For the first time in months, I was looking at Truist today thinking, gosh, that stock's down to March 2020 levels. Does that make sense? I mean, well, I mean financials have gotten crushed here. Crushed. You look at like the KBW. Absolutely for crushed. Example. And I'm I mean, like, it tells a really tough story. Right. And you look at those things thinking, all right, there's a seven and a half, seven percent plus, seven, six dividend. 
Uh, they've got a pretty solid geographical footprint, and unless something really goes wrong with the fundamentals, should stocks be at the March 2020 level? I'm just, no, you know, but, I'm looking but, around uh, thinking maybe there's some things to own, so I'm, but, I'm not as negative rates as... rates going up the way they did in September was something really going wrong with the fundamentals. I mean, you know, obviously yes. bank stocks started to do worse as rates started to shoot Listen, up. You start worrying about financial conditions and credit and everything I, else. I'm looking forward. Like, our, we, we've been underweight banks all year. I'm just saying from here, for the first time literally all year, I was looking at stocks earlier today thinking there's a bigger recession and some more negativity embedded in those stocks than there are in other parts okay, of the so market. So it's those, more of a relative thing. You you're know? one of those that I wrote about at the top that said. Oh, no. Um, what did I do? No, that, that some people think the risk reward is better for stocks here forward. You, you obviously sound like you do. Yeah, I think we're headed higher by year end. I mean, I'm not, I have no idea in the next couple of weeks, but I think earnings are going to be fine. Um, and I think the, the general expectation, uh, I, I think people want to own stocks and they're trying to find quality names that are down a lot. And I'm seeing lots of things that I, I can own. I, I, th- I certainly think you want to avoid, you know, indebted companies that have to refinance at higher rates. It's not a all clear signal. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not negative thinking we're going to end the year way lower. I don't think it's a big risk off sustained trade. And obviously, I'm not getting into the geopolitical stuff, which is a little bit harder for somebody like me to have no, any idea. No, but it factors about. into you know, the possibilities of oil, right. uh, more shocks there. Right. Um, maybe it changes the more near-term calculus on rates. I mean, we've, we've been on such a hot boil of rates yeah. that you've needed them. If your thesis is going to work, you can't have rates continue to go up. I think the quality growth companies probably don't get affected that much by this environment in terms of their fundamentals. Our biggest overweight's been energy, not only because we see some asymmetry with uh, relative upward earnings revisions. We're very underweight uh, retail. So I think we're positioned correctly here, but I still see lots of long short opportunities. So I'm not, sometimes I look at the market and I'm like, I have no idea what I want to buy or what I don't want to buy. And right now I think there's like five or six things that I have high conviction on. I don't want to own machinery or electrical equipment. I don't want to own retail. I want to own energy and metals. All of a sudden, maybe staples are, I've always found it hard to get defensive because the staples were so expensive. Now I'm looking at Coke on my screen in order today. It looked like it was trading just below 20 times forward earnings. I usually can't get a decent quality defensive name below 20 times. So all of a sudden, I'm finding things that the risk reward look pretty good to me. Do you want to buy Coke below 20 times earnings? I think history says you do. You know, maybe they want as much pricing, but I know that their revenue algorithm in years three through 10 is going to be pretty good. But so, so, so help me understand this. Yeah. So as it relates to the consumer, mm-hmm. you're, you're a little more defensive, right? You yeah, staples, retail, staples over staples. retail, for sure. But then you sound pretty positive on the overall picture. Earnings are going to be I think they're going to be fine. I think they're going to be fine. And I think we got a little bit of, you know, kind of a harsh sell-off there. And I think you're looking out saying, can, can earnings be above? Look, the, all I need to know is, are earnings going to be up next year versus this year? And I currently think they will be. And so, therefore, well, that's not hard to do. Well, but, you know. Right? Uh, I mean, we've been, like, in the garbage can on earnings growth for a while. Well, earnings, yeah, that's true. But earnings expectations for 2023 are the same now as they were in February. Normally, they come down the whole time. We're using 225 for next year. Uh, the street's at 245. If you get something 225 or higher, I think the market has a bias toward heading higher. Look, I had six investor questions last week of what worked this year that I should immediately sell in December and buy in January because people were kind of burned by that you know, uh, NVIDIA, Tesla, Meta reversal last year. So I think people are already trying to think through mm-hmm. what do they want to sell that worked this year, kind of implying that they think things end higher this year. So then year. you think, I mean, 
So you think 225 for earnings for next year? That's your number. That's our base case. We said at the beginning of 23. All right. Yeah. Now what multiple are you putting on that? You got. It's got to be pretty high. Yeah. If you think the market's going to be That's true. materially higher than we are now, because I put it at 18 on that and I get to 4050. We're at 40, almost 44. Oh, you're going to have to pay way more than that to get a 5,000 S&P and believe there's a lot of upside because you have to believe that there's going to be not only growth next year, but you have to believe you're at the beginning of a multi-year earnings cycle. When we were sitting in 2011, you could sit there and say things were bad, but then earnings grew to 2019. If you don't believe that we're at the beginning of some sort of steady growth for a while, then I think you get you get a reset. Wait, My, but everybody's you know, saying we're late cycle. You don't think we're late cycle? Depends what business you're in. In trucking, we're at the beginning of a new cycle. In industrials, the end of a cycle. In semis, we're getting toward the end of the cycle. We can get to a new. It's it's all. I, I think what we're getting into the end of a semi cycle with AI well, yeah, yeah, and but, all that. Well, I'm saying in terms of the inventory cycle, it depends exactly. It depends what business you're talking about. In DRAM and, and NAND memory, Micron, we the cycle peaked 18 months. It really we don't have the synchronous kind of cyclicality we used to. And I think that's part of the reason I feel excited about some long, short opportunities in the market today. I'm just saying, I'm looking at the market right now thinking, like, you're asking me, are we going to end the year higher or not? I think it's 70-30 we do. And I think it's because earnings are going to be fine. I don't think bond yields run away from us. And I think people are uh, not positioned uh, and are behind are going to chase uh, to catch up uh, performance in Q4. All right, let's bring in Emily Rowland of John Hancock yeah. Investment Management to join the conversation. It's nice to see you. Welcome. So you, you heard Adam's take. Do you agree with it or not? Yeah, I mean, we agree that earnings season is probably going to be okay. You know, we're looking at the last quarter here where negative earnings growth is penciled in for the S&P 500. I think the challenge is going to be what happens from here. You look out over the next four quarters and analysts are penciling in between 8 and 13% earnings growth per quarter. We're also looking at estimates for a whopping 5.5% revenue growth. Uh, I think that's going to be challenging given where we are in the economic backdrop. Another thing that we're watching is, intra uh, is uh, margins. So we had just extraordinary margins, 13% in 2021. We're looking at 11%. Uh, for uh, going into next year, I think margins are going to compress. There's going to be a war on margins as the cost of capital goes up and demand slowly slows. But I think for now, we could see some some nice beats this quarter. But you don't sound like you, you certainly don't sound like you like the setup as much as Adam suggests that he does. Well, I agree with him that there are opportunities. One thing that we didn't touch on much was the backup in bond yields. You know, Scott, we've talked a lot about how we see value in bonds today. You know, I think investors often look at big corrections in equity markets as an opportunity to capitalize and buy things that are trading at a discount and they're finally cheap. We almost never think about bonds like that. Uh, we just saw one of the biggest backup in rates in the third quarter that we've seen in history. Rates went up almost 1%, and now we're looking at 6% income on high-quality bonds. We think this is a really good opportunity for investors to lean into fixed income and get paid to wait, as we do think that recession does likely unfold into next year. So how do you want to counter that, right? That I mean, I, I focus mostly on U.S. equities and so do my clients, but every cross-asset person uh, you know, this year has liked bonds, right? And and so I think the question is, you know, what makes that work? Um, I think equity is premium, meaning the, the the yield I get, you know, compared to you know, to, 
I think people found equities unattractive all year. I think that works in years five through 10, has some predictive value in years three through five, and zero predictive value in the three-year window. It's very hard to compare bond yields to equities and make money in a shorter-term window. Is there if, you're, if, you're, if you have her job and you're giving asset allocation for tons of money to tons of people, then you have to, you have to look at that bond equity thing well, and make there, intelligent choices. You if you that. talk to my clients who are mostly focused on the rest of this year, they think equities are going higher and they're trying to figure out how to beat the market. So I think it's a bit of a timing disconnect that maybe mm-hmm. explains some of our Is there better value, Adam, in bonds or better value in some of those cheaper stocks? If you want to play this as an equity conversation, how would you answer that question? Because there are a, a large number, I think, of, of people who still think that there's better value and better risk reward in bonds or in cash versus a very uneven what I, economic what I, picture. What I would tell you is there's been very, very few times in the last hundred years where there was better value in cash than equities over any meaningful period of time. Mm-hmm. To the point that if you, if you told me in your 401k option at your, at your company, they allowed you to choose any cash, I might say that's, that's something they shouldn't allow you to do. No, but you know what I'm talking no. about. Because so I'm never going to say cash is a great <laughs> idea, I, I, you know, for any sustained period. Could it be good for the next three or four months? cash is better than losing money in the stock market. For sure. For that's, sure. That's and that the, might be the right the call. calculus that people that, have made over that, the last 18 months. Right, and that's destroyed their net worth as the equity market has <laughs> ripped through all that. So my point is, like, it has to be right exactly when you do it for this three-month period. And I'm willing to bet that, I don't know, 73 of the next 80 three-month periods, that'll be a dumb idea. And this could be one of the times, maybe. You know what I mean. Emily, <laughs> so we're, we're about to kick off earnings season. Um, you suggested that there'll be, you know, good I mean, obviously, Adam's looking or they'll be OK or good enough. You think it'll be good enough? Like, where is the bar? Is the bar low? Well, the bar is low. Analysts are expecting negative one percent earnings growth uh, for this quarter. So, you know, I think that that can be achieved. Of course, we'll be watching the financial stocks. They're expected to see about nine percent growth this quarter. And there are a number of year over year tailwinds for the banks. You know, you have. Uh, a doubling in interest rates. Uh, you have, you know, the markets generally are higher than they were a year ago. But then on the other hand, you've got a yield curve that was much steeper in Q3, uh, Q3 of 2022. And you've got some potential loan write downs here. I think we're going to be looking to see, you know, can we get a read on the consumer here? And that should come through in some of these bank earnings. Consumer is fine. Everybody's got a job for now. So you like the financials? Um, they're not our favorite sector. We actually are looking uh, for pockets of quality. Uh, so we like areas like technology stocks that have great balance sheets, low interest burdens. Adam talked about this, superior profitability, a better ability to maintain margins. We like areas like healthcare, which are actually trading at a discount. Um, they've sort of been left in the dust. They're trading at a 10% discount to the market. Uh, 20 plus percent return on equity there. So we like that part of the market. We also want to find things that are already pricing in this contraction that we expect. So we look to areas like U.S. mid-cap equities, which are trading at a significant discount, the biggest discount since the late 1990s versus their large cap counterparts, also cheap at about 12 times forward earnings for their own long-term history. So it's really about finding that balance between protecting portfolios from solvency risk at the same time from protecting them from valuation risk. Would you buy small caps or, no, or mid caps? We're, we're, she and I are on the opposite side of a bunch of things right now, but I think some of it's <laughs> just timing. That, you know, I don't think the market can rally and have small caps outperform the whole broadening thesis because 
what makes them outperform is a dream their margins are going to expand more. And so some of them are more vulnerable to wage increases, rising commodities, you know, and, you know, cost of capital stuff that she alluded to. The truth is the biggest 20 or 30 U.S. equities, which are, you know, 40, 50 percent of the market, they don't have any cost of capital issues. You think, you know, there's a problem for <laughs> Apple on cost of capital? You know what I mean? So I, I, I think that it doesn't mean that, that they it, are cheap. They're at a 20 year valuation gap. But the catalyst has to be that plus the estimates are more what achievable. If the, well, what if the catalyst is soft landing? What if the catalyst becomes more clear that you're not going to... I mean, a year ago, everyone was talking about a hard landing, and then it was a soft landing. Like, we're in the Goldilocks period right now where the Fed's almost done and the earnings haven't collapsed yet. That's going to be good for equities. It has been and will continue to be. And we'll make, make that change if we somehow get a collapse in earnings in the second half of next year. But it sounds and the like interim it, but earnings are fine. If you're saying Goldilocks, you're implying that there's a, a lot of stuff that, that's going to do well. Small caps don't necessarily have to be the best performing thing in the market. It's not, no one's saying they have to outperform mega cap, but I mean, if, if this is Goldilocks, yeah, then you think the economy's I think good. the small caps will do well. I think they'll do less well than the mega large for the next three or four months. And I think the mega cap growth stocks are going to participate and, and do, do better than normal. Look at earnings season. Which one do you think is going to have a bad quarter? I don't think Microsoft's going to have a bad quarter. I don't think Amazon's going to have a bad quarter. I don't, I don't think NVIDIA's going to have a bad quarter. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think, think Google's going to have a bad quarter. I don't think you do either, right? So I think she's right if you look out 12, 18 months that that if the economy you know, bottoms and improves some, that small caps are just too cheap and they're embedding more of a recession than others. So I don't disagree, but I think it's just a timing issue. You're saying right now it's mid-October, what's going to happen between year end, which a lot of equity people well, will focus on. Everything's yeah. a timing thing when it comes to investing, right. isn't it? Like you Everything buy is, it at the right time. Tons of equity investors today are focused on how they can make money between now and year end. When you do what she does, asset allocation for multiple years for lots of people, you got to think one, three, five, and 10 years out. Nobody I talk to or 90% of people I talk to don't care about five years from now. Okay. Um, probably more, more, more than not care about it who, who are watching us, Emily. What, what's your perspective then? Um, let's just take mega cap, for example. Are you expecting the earnings there to, to be good enough to propel this sector, to carry the market towards a year-end run? Yeah, I actually agree with Adam on this at this point. We have been overweight U.S. large cap equities in portfolios. We certainly have a preference for domestic over international equities. And we look at these mega cap names as being the poster child for quality, which is our favorite thing to screen for right now. We talked about more durable profitability, limited need to tap the capital markets in order to grow. We don't want that right now. So I certainly see some more durability there. And I, I want to be clear, we, we aren't emphasizing mid-cap equities, but we're underweight small caps. So 45% of the Russell 2000 index is comprised of unprofitable companies. We don't want to own that in portfolios. Small caps should be better poised to do well early in a cycle. And the final thing I'll say, by the way, just to jump in, is you know I've been doing this job for about a decade now. This is actually the first time that we've been overweight bonds in portfolios. It takes a lot for us to love bonds. Um, we all yeah. know that equities are a much more powerful compounder of wealth over time. So we'll probably go back to an overweight uh, to to stocks once we see this downshift in bond yields play out, which we certainly expect as economic contraction unfolds. Yeah, I mean bond yields are the highest they've been since 07. So that that makes sense. I don't I don't, I don't disagree. Yeah. And, if you know, um, and you know, I talked about it on your show. It was April '22 when I bought the two-year yield of my PA because it could finally, you know, laddering CDs couldn't beat it anymore. But I think if you're just, you know, and I agree totally on U.S. equities versus non-U.S. equities. I mean, I've I've said for 15 years that Europe's great for vacation, but what not about for stocks. What so about I, utilities? You buying? Are you, do you see value there? I no? kind of do. Okay, I think these things that really got sold off in Q3 because the 10-year yield backed up actually have more achievable estimates than most other businesses. They're just safer. 
So if I'm looking at, if you guys are worried a little bit about the potential for a fear of a recession growing, everyone was wrong this year, there wasn't one, but maybe there will be, right. and they were early, then all of a sudden I can buy defensive equities at lower multiples than I could at any time in the last several years. The problem with several years ago, 2018 and 16, when you got nervous, you had to pay 30 times for defensive names. Now you can pay 20 times. So yeah. all of a sudden the risk reward looks better. And in my view, if I'm trying to find a way to you know, get a basket of stocks to beat the S&P, I think some of those things finally look attractive for the first time in a while. I can buy Coke at 20 times, I had to pay 30 times in prior cycles, that kind of stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll leave it there. Emily, thank you. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Emily Rowland, Adam Parker, thanks to you as well. All right, let's get to our question of the day. We want to know, do you think the risk reward for buying stocks is about to get better or worse? You can head to at CNBC, closing bell on X to vote. The results a little later on in the hour. In the meantime, a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Courtney Reagan is here with that. Hey, Court. Hi, Scott. Well, the war in Israel is sending oil prices higher with WTI and Brent both up 4%. That has shares of Halliburton, Marathon Oil, and Devon Energy up around 6% with a number of other big gainers in the energy sector. And gains in oil are pressuring the airlines, which have been warning about higher fuel costs over the past few months as it is. Major carriers like Delta, American, United, they've all suspended service to Tel Aviv, at least currently. All of those stocks are off by about 5%. And defense contractors are higher as the conflict potentially leads to higher demand for weapons and other instruments of war. Names like Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, and Lockheed Martin all firmly in positive territory. One of the ETFs that tracks those names, ticker ITA, it's on pace for its best day in nearly a year. Scott? All right, Court, we'll talk to you soon. That's Courtney Reagan. We're just getting started. Up next, trading the tech volatility. The XLK slipping over the last month, down more than 2%. However, our next guest is breaking down where he's seeing pockets of opportunity in that sector as we head towards the end of the year and into earnings season. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Closing Bell. The NASDAQ looking to close in the green today. My next guest believes tech stocks are a smart buy, could serve as a good defense against any market headwinds to come. Joining me now, Doug Clinton, managing partner and co-founder of Deepwater Asset Management. Good to see you. Uh, nice reversal today, too, uh, by the way, for a NASDAQ that was lower than almost every mega cap tech stock I could find here is, um, is green, except for NVIDIA is modestly lower now. Tesla will call that flat. What's the state of, of big cap tech right here? I think that no matter whether you're trying to play offense or defense here from this market, you can own the MAG7. So if you want offense, if you think rates are going to calm down, I think that you can own them and you can own them for the growth. These are great growth stocks still. If you want to play defense, they have great fortress balance sheets. 
And I think that even in a tough economic environment, they have businesses that should be resilient in, in, in a recession. And so they'll weather the storm better than most other companies. I think that you know, the knock would be, OK, I, I hear you on, on all of that, but the valuations are a problem for some based on how they're you know, looking at where earnings are going to be, where growth has been, where rates are. How do you, how do you counter that? We try to pick and choose. I mean, for us, Google and Meta are our two favorite names amongst the MAG7. Both of them, we think, trade at actually reasonable valuations. They're both around 20 times next year's earnings, and they both have great catalysts. I think for Google, they have a new AI model that they're releasing called Gemini. That should be a catalyst for the stock. It could drive the multiple higher. And on Meta, it's been a year of efficiency per Mark Zuckerberg, mm-hmm. but it's also been, I think, a year of accelerated progress. So. That's been underrated. I think Meta is innovating at a faster pace now than they have over the last five or 10 years. So you wouldn't own Amazon, you wouldn't own NVIDIA, and then I want to know where Apple comes down on your list as well. Okay. NVIDIA, we actually had in one of our strategies, the Deepwater Frontier Tech strategy, powers the innovator loop ETF. We took that out earlier this year. We we replaced it with AMD. We actually think risk-reward-wise, we would rather own AMD here than NVIDIA. The reason is AMD has a new chip coming out later this year, competes with uh, with NVIDIA's high-end chip. I think if they get just a little bit of traction and just gain a little bit of market share from NVIDIA, who has 85 90% market share for AI compute, it's great for AMD's stock. We also owned Amazon earlier this year. We sold it because we actually see better opportunities in Google and Meta. You just have an issue with NVIDIA's valuation, where it is? It's hard to make the case. I mean, you you make the case for not owning it, and in some respects, you kind of make the case for owning it because they have 80 to 85% market share. I think if you own it and you want to be part of the AI revolution, you're going to be fine. I think there's a better option out there, which is AMD from a stock standpoint, which we view as different than maybe a fundamental business standpoint for the AI revolution. Okay, now Apple. Apple, we love, I mean, it's the greatest company in the world. And you know, my, we were just talking about my partner, Gene, he loves Apple. I think for us, no, again, he loves you, Apple. You look at the multiple. He loves he Apple. He loves Apple. Gene you, Munster, that's who we're talking about. You, you look so at, do you own it? We don't own Apple right now. Does Gene know that? I have to tell him, and he'll be sad. No, seriously, why don't you own it? Again, we go back to what are we trying to do with the MAG-7? We don't want to own all of them. We want to try to pick the ones that we think have the most upside over the next 6, 12, 18 months. It's Google and Meta for us. They have more reasonable multiples, and we actually think they might have better growth prospects than Apple for the next foreseeable future. So what's your outlook then for earnings in this space, which is going to come in just a few weeks? We think that earnings largely in tech will be fine. I think this quarter is set up so different than last quarter. Last quarter, I think there was a ton of expectations coming into earnings. There was a lot of optimism. And we saw uh, companies reporting pretty decent earnings and stocks were going down. I think it's a different setup here where expectations are more modest. And I think earnings are going to be okay in big cap tech. And I think largely the stocks will be the same. Okay. All right. It's good to see you, Doug. Thanks. That's Doug Clinton, uh, Deepwater, joining us. Up next, weighing market risks, J.P. Morgan Asset Management's global market strategist, Mira Pandit, is back. We'll find out how she's navigating these markets, where she sees stocks heading from here. Closing bell right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. We're back on Closing Bell following the latest developments out of the Middle East as the conflict between Israel and Hamas enters its third day now. Let's get to Eamon Javers for the very latest. Eamon? Hey there, Scott. Well, I'm at the Cypher Brief Threat Conference here in Sea Island, Georgia. This is an annual gathering of top current and former U.S. intelligence officials. And I got to say, Scott, the mood here is pretty grim among the CIA veterans I've been talking to today. There is a sense that the casualty count in Israel and in Gaza is going to increase sharply on the ground, even as both sides really struggle to win a parallel information war online. I spoke with Norman Rule. Now, he's a longtime CIA officer who served as the national intelligence manager for Iran in the U.S. intelligence community. He said we should steel ourselves for what he called dark days ahead and said the hostages in Gaza are in a very difficult situation. And he said the intensity of the Hamas violence that we've seen is intended a deliberate tactical choice by that terrorist organization. They conducted a series of operations that we have not seen since uh, ISIS activities in Syria and Iraq. These are horrific stories that are only beginning to emerge, but as they emerge, they're telling of a new modus operandi by uh, Palestinian terrorists where civilians were not only kidnapped, murdered, abused, but we're talking children, elderly. And Scott, of course, there are parallel questions here among this group as to how several of the most highly financed and technically sophisticated intelligence services in the world, including the U.S. and Israel, missed this terrorist attack as it was being masked. For now, very few answers to those questions. But Rule said it's important to understand how Hamas did this before they or someone else can do it again, Scott. Yeah. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers. With the update uh, for what this means for the markets, let's bring in J.P. Morgan Asset Management's global market strategist, Mira Pandit. Welcome back. Um, geopolitical risk um, introduced in a new a new way or at least a new risk for investors to consider. And I just recall what it was two weeks ago. Jamie Dimon was talking about geopolitical risk as being maybe the biggest risk for markets still. How should we think about it here forward now? When we think about the conflict that is unfolding right now overseas, of course, we cannot underscore how vast the implications are from a humanitarian perspective and from a political perspective. And of course, it's going to send some jitters through markets. But what we have seen over time is that typically the impact in the longer run from geopolitical events tends to be somewhat contained. Now, of course, that wasn't the case last year with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So let's dissect that a little bit to major commodities exporters. and a big shock to energy supply and food supply at a time where the world was very vulnerable to an inflation shock. So what we're watching right now as we see this conflict unfold from an economic and market perspective is, does it widen out? Do more countries within the Middle East get involved? What is the pass-through effect potentially to things like oil? Um, but at this point, it's day one. It's really early to say. We just advise clients to, to keep their cool and composure at, at this time as things unfold. Most important thing for the market remains rates and the direction of interest rates. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, when we think about where the Fed is going, likely headed towards a pause in November. And from there on out, higher for longer. And we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks the effect 
that higher for longer is having on stocks as we realize, okay, we're not going to go back to lower rates meaningfully for a while. Um, we're going to have to deal with this type of rate environment. I'd also fold in earnings and growth, of course, oh, in sure. terms of how that continues yeah. to play out into the end of this year and next year. You think we're too optimistic on earnings projections? How do you feel about that? Because they've sort of, you know, they've crept up and then pretty optimistic for 2024. We've probably seen the worst of earnings for this year. And so what we could see is a quite a nice quarter coming up in which we see revenue still holding up as a consumer holds up. Margins looking a little bit better because uh, we've seen inflation start to, to come down and input costs come down. Wages start to come down a little bit. But as we head into next year, if we're not going to see 4% growth as we're tracking roughly right now for this quarter and we start to see even trend growth or below, that's going to put pressure on revenues. And, and what could happen next year is we see a little bit of a dip then. I mean, right now, expectations are for 12% growth in profits for 2024. That feels a little bit lofty, so we have to prepare ourselves from a market standpoint that that might not be the outcome. Okay, so we talked about rates. We just talked about earnings. So then let's talk about valuations, right? Because A plus B equals C. Are valuations, is the market too rich or not? The good news about the equity market is things have come down a little bit. So if you look at the S&P as a whole, it's about 8% more expensive than long-term averages. Uh, Not great, but if you take out just the top 10 stocks, they're about 30% more expensive than long-term averages. So I do think we have to, to really modify our allocations in terms of where we're finding relative pricing opportunities. Look, things are better than July in terms of pricing. They're not perfect. Um, So we have to keep that in mind. But it's just going to be a tougher environment for investing going forward, no matter whether you're looking at stocks or bonds, given the rate environment. What area looks cheap to you in in the equity market right now, especially? Let's look outside of mega cap tech for sure. And look in certain areas within sort of the value or even more defensive areas. I mean, defensive stocks have, have kind of gotten crushed over the last couple of weeks. Like staples? Maybe more staples, maybe more healthcare. really, uh, when we think about some of the fundamentals there potentially starting to turn around a little bit. Um, I still think areas like energy, especially now that there's a little bit of volatility and uncertainty that energy prices could move higher. Mm-hmm. So when within that, healthcare, energy, again, more value, more defensive than, than some of the growth names right now. What about utilities? Had a, had a tough go yeah. uh, not too long ago. Some I think, see opportunity in that. I think you could start to see that turn around a little bit. But we also don't want to get overly defensive at this point in that we're not quite there where we're seeing the immediate trouble on the horizon. So it's really sort of a balance mm-hmm. at this point. Adam Parker started the show by suggesting we could have a pretty good chase into year end. And he's definitely saw the market higher between now and then. You? I'm not so sure that there's too much to chase because, again, if right now we are seeing potential for 4% growth and 12% earnings next year, I do think those expectations are going to come down throughout the rest of the quarter. Maybe people get a little bit excited about a rate pause, but then remember that we have higher for longer. So I don't know that there's going to be a huge amount of upside from here. We have to just be selective in where we're deploying money. Mira Pandit, we'll see you soon. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. All right. Up next, we are tracking the biggest movers. As we head into the close, Courtney Reagan is back with that. Court. Hi, Scott. Well, two stocks moving in opposite directions on big analyst calls. One in music, one in cybersecurity. I've got the names coming up next. 
Uh, we're 17 minutes away from the closing bell. Let's get back to Courtney Reagan now for a look at the stocks she is watching. Courtney. Hi, Scott. So shares of Spotify under pressure after a Redburn Atlantic downgraded the stock from neutral to buy. Analysts say the streamer's new audiobook offering doesn't help its forecast for margin expansion and could stoke competition from Amazon, which owns Audible. And Zscaler is also getting some analyst attention. Barclays is upgrading the cyber giant to overweight and hiking its price target to 190 a share from 176. Analysts cited a new growth opportunity for Zscaler in an emerging type of cybersecurity. Those shares higher by three and a half percent. Scott. All right, Court. Thank you, Courtney Reagan. Last chance now to weigh in on our question of the day. We asked, do you think the risk reward for buying stocks is about to get better or worse? Head to at CNBC closing bell on X. The results are just after this break. The results now of our question of the day. We asked, do you think the risk reward for buying stocks is about to get better or worse? The majority of you said worse, and it was really tight. We'll call it even, because that's how we are. Up next, we're drilling down on Disney. That stock shifting higher as activist investor Nelson Peltz increases his stake in a big way. We break down what's at stake after the break. That and much more when we take you inside the market zone. We're in the closing bell market zone now. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down the crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Julia Porston on Nelson Peltz's renewed push for Disney board seats. And Deirdre Bosa on the analysts weighing in on arm holdings today. Mike, to you first. A uh, lot of green. Uh, nice turn. Yeah. And I guess some relief to a, for a bond market that's closed, but the futures are giving us a little bit of a tell. Yeah, the repetition, it seems, from these Fed officials pointing to the same factor, long-term yields going up, maybe means the Fed has to do less. I think it does free up uh, the market to essentially embrace the fact that we have a decent economy right here. It is more of a normalization-type move in rates than it is uh, you know, a punishing one in that context. That being said, you know, we're, we're up for the month now on the S&P 500, which is a little bit of a surprise, but still... With plenty to prove. I think everyone's looking at, you know, get above 4,400, get back to that level where we kind of fell out of bed in uh, the third or fourth week of September before you know that this is a sustainable bounce. But I do think if yields are calm, earnings season coming, you're going to have a little bit less macro stress. And the oil move today, while dramatic, only gets us back to where we were several days ago. So it's absorbable for now. CPI needs to play into the uh, Fed is may, may very well be done. Uh, rates have done a lot of the work for the Fed. Yes. You don't want to upset that. It certainly with has to fit into it. A lot of Fed speakers yeah. are saying the same thing now. It can't, it can't contradict it in, in too loud a way, although I do think that the projections of, of CPI have been coming in very close to the resulting number. You also had, I believe it was Philip Jefferson uh, of the Fed today, who said we're not going to get distracted by one any one number. And that presumably works in both directions. So uh, you can have some comfort that broadly disinflation is the law of the land for now. All right. Come back to you in a bit. Uh, Julia Borston, he's back. What does he want this time? Well, Nelson Peltz's Trion Fund Management is now. It's one of Disney's largest investors with a stake of 30 million shares worth more than $2.5 billion. Peltz also plans to push for multiple board seats at Disney, this according to sources familiar with the situation. Now, all of this comes after Disney shares just last week hit their lowest level since 2014. It also comes after back in January, Trion launched a proxy fight against Disney, criticizing Disney's acquisition of Fox and failed succession planning. Peltz dropped the battle after CEO Bob Iger unveiled a corporate reorganization and meaningful job cuts. 
Gordon Haskett Research writing, quote, the stock is stuck in the exact same spot and Disney is holding a much weaker hand of cards than it was holding last winter. Now, the stock is down since then, but Iger has announced a slew of changes. Disney had no comment, and we are awaiting official announcement from Tryon and Peltz about what their plan is here. Guys? Yeah, yeah Julia, thanks. I mean, to Julia's point, he sort of Peltz stood down the first time and then have watched the stock yeah. do nothing, even though this plan was enacted and now is, I guess, thinking uh, enough is enough. Time for more action. Presumably, look, I mean, the cost of getting back involved has gone down as the stock has declined. I don't think anyone has the impression, I doubt Peltz has the impression that there are three or five obvious things to be done to reorient this business that aren't being done by uh, by Bob Iger. It's just more a matter of let's have more of a say in it, maybe change the pace of some of the strategic moves that are on the table. Uh, but it's just been a, an incredibly tough area of the market, and Disney just hasn't been immune to the bigger pressures. Yeah, Deirdre Bosa uh, on arm today. We're waiting for the analysts to start weighing in uh, following the IPO. Not six weeks ago, I guess. Yeah, we needed... So what's the, what's the story? Days to, 25 days to be exact. That's how long the banks that underwrote the IPO had to wait in order to publish their research. So now that's out. And overwhelmingly, they're rating the stock a buy. Of the 10 that I read through this morning, all of them were a buy. The consensus is that they like ARM's growth prospects. Right now, right now ARM is the biggest player in smartphones, but they think that there's room in infrastructure, cloud infrastructure, as well as automotive, and of course, AI. That is sort of the big gamble here, which they say justifies its valuation, which is so far above the rest of the chip space, save maybe an NVIDIA. Meanwhile, though, I do want to point out that the market has cooled on ARM. Remember that first day pop, it was about 25%. It has paired gains from there. The consensus or the average price target now for the company is about 10 bucks above where it is today. So a lot would have to happen um, to fulfill sort of these expectations, Scott. But I also think it's interesting to note the SoftBank and the Masasan in all of this, because remember that they are still 90% shareholders. And Arm is really now the new crown jewel for SoftBank, taking the place of Alibaba as Masasan has sold down that share over the last few years. Yeah, Dean, appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa, uh, back to Mike Santoli. I haven't talked that much in the last week or so about IPOs, yeah. though I, I did see some Birkenstocks floating around the floor <laughs> a little bit earlier. Yes, uh, they're ready for that they're starting one to make the uh, rounds. at this point. Yeah, I'll see, uh, see if we're going to see a lot of bare feet around this place on Wednesday. But uh, I do think when it comes to Arm, and no surprise that you would have the parade of investment banks, and by the way, it was dozens who were involved in this deal um, because the stock is so close to the actual IPO price. So, you know, you priced it at 51. It's trading, give or take a couple bucks above that. Um, it's an easy call to say we think it's a core holding and we think you have to own it at these levels. I still don't know. You know, the response today wasn't necessarily uh, particularly exciting. There was a, a it's up a little bit. I think the same debate on a very known quantity of a company is, is there in play. What do you pay for a company at this sort of integral spot in chip design, but you don't really know if it's involved in the right areas uh, of chips. So broadly, uh, IPOs, uh, you know, I think it's going to be deal by deal. And you got to have something a little bit special if you're going to be in this first wave. So let's turn our attention to earnings. Going to get the banks first out of the gates. I wonder what you think that's going to mean for sentiment. You're going to get a lot of commentary about rates being up. Yes. The likes of Jamie Dimon talking about and talking loudly about the perceived risks. And now you add this geopolitical 
uh, element to, sure. to that as well, as he's already been talking about that for weeks. Yeah, I mean, the two things I would look at would be just quantifying on a quarter-end basis where they stand in terms of impact of rates on the balance sheet, on bond holdings. You know, for Bank of America, it matters quite a bit. For others, maybe not as much. And then what their credit loss or delinquency experience has been so far mm -hmm. and what they're projecting. Because there's a lot of sensitivity toward credit trends right now. Everything looks a little scary on a short-term time frame in terms of credit card delinquencies, especially among lower-income households. But if you look at it on a longer-term frame, it really isn't much of anything except coming off very depressed levels of delinquency. And so it kind of looks like a return to normal. What is that going to mean on a going-forward basis? So I, I think those are the areas. Really, it is macro, even though it's company-specific. Oh, sure. You know, it's kind of their window on the macro. They're probably going to say, on the spending side, in terms of account balances, things look healthy, jobs uh, are in a good spot. So I think it is much more about the credit performance. Brian Moynihan, Bank of America, usually gives a pretty good view yeah. into the consumer spending psyche. Um, cheaper areas of the market, it's interesting. You know, we talked to Adam Parker, top sure. of the show, and others are, are, you know, mentioned, hey, maybe some staples. You know, I can get Coca-Cola and Pepsi for a lot cheaper than I thought I could yeah. uh, just a short while ago. If you're Even of a mind. utility uh, action from folks. Yeah, if you're of a mind to say, okay, they've actually put some relatively defensive things on sale and you could lock it in and you have higher dividend yields on things like, you know, PepsiCo than you've had in years. Fine. I would also, though, look at the more cyclical parts of the market that have really been cheapened. And you have to decide, do we believe the economic outlook implied by, you know, I saw Capital One got an upgrade today. That's a good example of, it's a dirt cheap stock. Is it cheap for a real reason? Uh, or, you know, you can you look over the valley and say that it's worth buying? That's the area... Where, and plus, I think you could also look at busted retail uh, as, as a spot if you're really brave and opportunistic about it. Well, we'll watch energy, too, uh, of course, given those events taking place over in the Middle East. Well, we're going to go out with a nice turnaround here. Bell rings, Dow's good for just shy of 200 points. S&P positive and a NASDAQ with that late-day turn as well. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.